Father, we come before you together in Jesus' name right now, Lord, uh, because we need your grace, Father. We, um, we need you if this is going to be any kind of fruitful time for us, God. Um, so we pray you'd speak to us, Lord. Uh, help us to see you clearly, Father. Help this to be uh, yeah, a time where you Get right to our heart, Father. Speak directly to us, God. Speak to us in a way where we feel like your word right here was written for us. God, bring our sin to mind. God, help us not to think about, oh, I know my friend who needs to hear this, Father. Help us to hear your word with humble hearts, Father. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You hold this one. Thank you. Um, I want to start out by, by saying this, telling you about one of the things that I love, that I enjoy a lot. Um, one of those things is documentaries, good documentaries. I don't like to just watch any documentary, I, uh, but good ones about interesting things. Some of my favorite kinds of uh, documentaries, even if they're short, uh, are those that are about how people make stuff, especially artists. Have you ever watched any kind of documentaries, maybe how an artist makes an album? Uh, or there's this uh, series on Netflix called Abstract that's about all these different kinds of designers, and so it has like... Tinker Hatfield, the goat of sneaker design, and talking about some of the ways that he designs stuff and has graphic designers and all different kinds of designers. And I love watching it uh, because usually what we get when someone makes something is we get to enjoy the final finished product. And so there's all kind of stuff that we enjoy that way. But I love being able to also watch kind of the process, how they did it, and, and what that takes from from somebody's account of vulnerability to let people in and see that and to be okay with people seeing your missteps and kind of demystifying it, making it seem less amazing when you get to just see and watch how people do it. So I, I really enjoy that. It inspires me, gives me ideas for how to do stuff. Some artists are even, uh, if they're working on a new album and uh, it's taking too long and their fans are like, where's your new album at? They'll post stuff while they're still working on it so people can see like, hey, finished product is coming, but I just want you to know I'm working. And sometimes what that does for me is when I get to see that process too, it makes me enjoy it more because I, I get to think about what actually happened. I remember when I was like in high school and uh, the Fade to Black documentary came out for the Black album, Jay-Z. And so every time I heard Dirt Off Your Shoulder, I was like, I remember when Timbaland was playing that beat and Jay-Z had his stank face on. You know what I'm saying? It makes me just enjoy everything more when we get to see the process. We don't have to just wait to see the finished product. And here's, here's the reason I'm bringing that up, because what we see in Scripture and what we see in these verses we're looking at is that God is in the process of making something beautiful and perfect, and there's going to be a finished product one day, right, that's completely blameless, and that's his church. God is in the process of doing that, and God is working on that, and the gospel is the thing that he's using to do it. And the, one of the things we get to hope and look forward to is that one day we get to see the perfect final finished product. There are other believers in this room who you'll get to see perfect, glorified, no sin, no pain, no tears. And that's incredible that we're going to get to see that. But here's what happens. Sometimes we wonder if the gospel is actually doing anything right now. Like, I know the gospel tells me that something's going to happen at some point, but is it actually at work right now? Is there anything right now that's actually happening? And what we see in Scripture is not only do we get to see that perfect final finished product, but God is going to show us his work. Almost like when you were uh, in school and you did a math problem and you was trying to cheat with the answers from the back of the book. So the teacher told you you had to show your work, right? Well, here's the thing. What's going to happen is 
for the gospel, we not only get to see the final perfect finished product, but the gospel shows its work. The gospel shows us even now that there are things that are happening, actual things that we can observe. And here's why this matters for us to be able to see how the gospel shows up, because that's one of the ways we can know if the gospel is really taking root in our lives, if it's actually showing up, if it's doing anything, if there's any work there's actually producing. And that's a good way for us to examine our hearts as we see what the gospel does. Anytime you're trying to do something or figure something out, you look at other examples of how it's done well to to examine how you're doing. So uh, maybe like Tanner, who's good at building all kinds of stuff. Uh, He's one of these people who's just really good at it naturally. He's just teaching himself. I'm sure as he's trying to learn how to build stuff with wood, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Tanner. You're looking at what other people are doing, right? You're measuring your work up against it. That's how I decided you were good. I was like, that looks good. Let me look at other stuff, make sure I'm not wrong. And it's right. You are good. I'm, um, I'm not the authority, but I'd like to encourage you publicly right now. But that's one of the things we do sometimes to see how we're doing. And the same thing goes with our faith. If we want to know, okay, this faith that I have, this relationship with Jesus, is this the authentic real thing? Is this the real deal? Is the gospel really at work in me? It's the stuff that I think is the gospel showing up, actually the stuff that the gospel does, and Paul is going to show us some of that. Uh, Does our faith actually show itself to be the real deal? And I'm going to look at 1 Thessalonians, so you can turn to 1 Thessalonians, and while you do that, I'll give you some background. Can Can you raise your hand if you have read 1 Thessalonians before? That's more than I expected. Good. That's more than I expected. But this is one of those, it's kind of towards the back of Paul's epistles before you get to the the pastoral one, so people don't read it as much, but it's really good. Um, Give you a little bit of background just so you know. This is a letter Paul wrote to a group of Christians in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital of the province of Macedonia. Macedonia was in what we think of as Greece now, so it was northern central Greece. That's where Paul went, and he had gone there during his travel. So Paul, right, had this miraculous conversion. Then he was going around telling people about Jesus. And on one of his travels, uh, he goes, and he actually gets this vision to go to Macedonia. I'm going to read. uh, You don't have to turn here. It's going to be on the screen. Before we get to 1 Thessalonians, I'm going to read this to give us some background. Uh, Acts 16. It says, during the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he'd seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I think that's a fair conclusion, that God has called you to preach the gospel to them. If you have a dream and somebody's begging you to tell them about Jesus, you better tell them about Jesus. Uh, every dream isn't a word from God, but I think it's safe to say if someone is in your dream like, please tell me about Jesus, you better do it. Uh, God is probably calling you to do that. So they go to Macedonia. They go through Philippi, which is also Macedonia. It's where we get uh, Philippians from. And then in Acts 17, he makes it to Thessalonica. He makes a quick trip there. I want to read this, Acts 17, 1 to 9, to give us this background. This is what it says. This is Paul and his crew. It says, after they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. 
But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. They searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they didn't find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, saying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason is welcome. They're all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying that there's another king, Jesus. The crowd and the city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released him. Um, first of all, whenever I read that account, I'm always thrown off that there's a dude named Jason. It always, I'm like, is that right? Is this the message translation? His name was Jason? It's like Andronicus, Aquila, Priscilla, and Jason. Uh, which always makes me think I'm reading it wrong, but that was really his name, Jason. So basically, they go there. They, uh, Paul does what he always does in the synagogues, talking to people about Jesus, and so people get saved. So there's some Jews in the synagogue that get saved. And he said, also a large number of the Greeks, there are people who are not Jews, Gentiles around the area, who were probably just worshiping pagan gods that were around. And then he says, and a large number of the women, too. Uh, there was a, a kind of unique culture of women's influence in the city as well, and so the women come and they hear, and they also, and so th- there's this fruit. He preaches the gospel, people get saved, and then he gets run off, basically. As always happens, when Jesus is preached, people understand, you talk about Jesus being the king of the universe, they say, that's a threat to my authority. Any place where Jesus isn't allowed, this is usually what's happened. People are threatened by him because they understand that he wants it all and he deserves it all. So they get run off. Right? And so now Paul, he, he wanted to tell them more about Jesus. He wanted to teach them more. He's only been there for a few weeks, but he has to leave. And so he, now he's worried about them. And he's trying to go back, but he can't. He wants to know how they're doing. Um, and so he sends Timothy back to just check on them. Like, Timothy, go check on them, see how they're doing. And Timothy brings back this good report that they're doing well. They're following Jesus. And you can imagine the joy that Paul feels because he was probably extremely worried about them. And so he writes them this letter. And so I'm going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. This is how the letter starts. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. I'll pause real quick. This is just his regular greeting. He's saying, hey, uh, uh, Silvanus and Timothy, these are other guys who co-labor with Paul in the gospel. And he's saying, we're writing to this church, uh, to you guys, uh, the Thessalonian church. Uh, And so after the greeting, let's let's see what he thinks about the gospel at work in them. Verse 2. He says, we always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Yes, the gospel shows its work. Right. And so what I want to look at is a few a few things to expect if we want to see the gospel at work in a community. What should we expect to see? The first thing is fruit. First thing we should expect to see is fruit. When the gospel is at work, there's fruit. Um, There's a lot of cultural conversations right now about authentic Christianity. What, what is real Christianity? Who are the real Christians? How do I know? There's political discussions. This always happens with presidents. So, for instance, our last three presidents have claimed to be believers, and they've all done stuff that have made people say, can they really be believers? This doesn't match up with this or that. So people are wondering, is that 
authentic Christianity that I see with President Bush or President Obama or President Trump. And people have strong opinions about that. Or, or even you have rappers like uh, Kanye West talking about God a lot in this music. He said his new album was a gospel album. If you think that means the gospel of Jesus, you'll be disappointed. <laughs> he means it sounds kind of gospelish and it'll bring up God sometimes. Or you have a Kendrick Lamar who just put out this record where... God is one of the main focuses of the album, and then alongside it, you have some of the other stuff that you expect to hear from hip-hop often, or Chance the Rapper, who talks about God a lot on his record. seems like he's going through this change in his life, and he's doing songs with Kurt Franklin, and performed How Great Is Our God at the Grammys. Not the Chris Tomlin version, a different one that he did. <laughs> and so this makes people say, okay, well, these, these guys are clearly calling themselves Christians, and they're, they're bringing up Jesus a lot. Is, is that authentic Christianity? What I'm not going to do is try to make a judgment from afar on men I don't know. But what I am going to say is when we wonder if it's authentic Christianity in us, in our friends, and we want to know what does Christianity look like in a community, what we see in this text will be the kind of stuff that shows us. And the first thing we see here is fruit. That's the stuff that, uh, that Paul is going to thank God for. There are always at least some visible outwards effects of the gospel at work. When I say fruit, I mean like when you plant a seed in the ground, not you personally because you don't do this. But when you plant a seed in the ground and fruit comes up, a seed is planted, the way you know it's taking root is this fruit. There's something that's produced by it. And it's the same thing for the gospel. If it's really taking root, then, then there's going to be some stuff that's produced by it in their lives. So, so let me read verse 2 again. Paul says, we always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. So Paul starts here by saying, look, I'm always thanking God for you because of what I've what I saw when I was there, the way y'all believe the gospel, and then what I've been hearing about you. And you can imagine why. It probably seems miraculous. He didn't know if this was happening. Because if people hated this message so much that they ran Paul and his friends out of town, you can imagine the way they treated the people who believed it, right? Especially, uh, I mean, people from all these different walks of life, from Jews. I mean, they were hitting persecution, and Greeks were getting persecution. These women were getting persecution. Uh, and so Paul is probably amazed and thanking God for what's happening. He likes what he sees in their lives. Quick side note, do you find it strange that if the Thessalonian Christians are doing something, he's thanking God for it? Does that seem strange? Right? So when, like, Richard does something for me, I don't thank John, right? Why is he thanking God for something that the Thessalonian Christians have done? But this is how Christianity works. Any kind of fruit that we see in our lives, though it may be actual obedience that we strove towards, right, even though we really wanted to do it and we did it, it's God who's behind it every single time, right? So even in Philippians, when he says, hey, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and he gives us the reason, for it is God who works and wills in you to do his perfect will. All right, so he's saying, hey, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is the one who's at work in you, not only for you to do it, but also to even want to do it. This is how Christianity works, so that they do something and he thanks God for it. And this is the kind of thing that should kill any self-righteousness in our hearts. If you're walking around feeling like, man, I am so holy, I ain't cussing nobody out in a week, I'm doing good. And you're still cussing people out over here, I'm going to pray for you. I just want you to know, any fruit that is anywhere in your life, right, should not be something you use to pat yourself on the back to be self-righteous with. It should be something that you thank God for, because he's the one who's done that work in you. There is no way to have this kind of gospel gratitude and humility and self-righteousness at the same time. Those things cannot coexist. So he thanks God for that, this godly gratitude in his heart. Remember we were talking about 
uh, all of us being saints. And in 1 Corinthians, how Paul, writing to this church, there's a mess, and he's praising God for stuffing them. Paul, in the same way, is always seeing ways that God is at work. And that's a good thing for us to see, and he's thanking God for it. We would do good, and, and we would be a healthy community. We'd be more healthy in all our relationships if we talked to each other about each other less and talked to God about each other more. If we did less gossiping and more praying, if we did less shaking our head at that fool and praying for him, we would do a lot better. We would love people better. And Paul's a good example here where he's uh, thanking God for what they've done. He mentioned them all the time in his prayers. And he says, I recall these things. We recall these things in the presence of our God and Father. One, it's amazing that Paul gets to be in the presence of our God and Father. Amazing that we get to, too. Even more amazing that he uses it as an opportunity to bring up other people. So if I told you, hey, I get to meet with the entire Congress of the United States, I can talk to them about whatever I want to. I can bring stuff up, ask them to do stuff, right? The city holding up this thing I want to do to my house, I can ask them to do that for me, to fix that. I can ask them whatever I want to. I can ask them to give just me individually reparations, anything I want. I can talk to Congress and ask them to do it. And I tell you about it, and you find out, I wasn't just bringing myself up, but your name kept coming up. And I was talking about the ways that you've been growing, and I was asking them to help you in some ways. What, what would that tell you about how significant you were to me? That before the most, in the presence of the most powerful people I'll ever be in the presence of, that I bring you up because I'm thinking about you. That would say something about my love for you. What Paul is saying, when I'm in the presence of our God and Father, I'm making constant mention of your name. That says something about his love for them. That says something about his gratitude for what the Lord has done in their lives. I want to ask you, who do you make mention of constantly in your prayers? Could you say that sentence to anybody? I make mention of you constantly in my prayer. I'm always talking to God about you. Can you say that about anybody? That's a good, good, good kind of question for us to ask and think through. Who are we praying for? Do you ever pray for other believers? Are your prayers just dominated by the stuff you're dealing with in any given moment? I want to encourage you to find ways to pray for others. We have a membership directory that all of us who are members of this church have access to that lists every person in our church. And a good thing for you to do, if you can't think about who to pray for, just start going through the list and pray for people. Even if you don't know them, you can pray that the Lord will be good to them. The Lord will be gracious to them. The Lord will help them grow. Make a prayer list. Here's something that's helpful for me because I'm absent-minded and I don't naturally like to pray. None of us do. I'll set reminders on my phone, right, just so at 3 o'clock on Tuesday, it'll remind me, pray for blah, blah, right? Pray for John, right, and his coffee addiction, and I'll remember to pray for him, <laughs> right? And I'll remember to pray for people. I'm praying for many of you, and, and that allows me to do that. I encourage you to just put stuff in place. Prayer does, just doesn't happen on accident. You don't stop Close your eyes and just talk to God on accident. I want to encourage you to uh, build stuff in your life that helps you to pray for people. And then one more note to take from Paul in his prayers here. He tells them, he's always mentioning them. It is encouraging to tell somebody that you've been praying for them. That's an encouraging thing, right? Hey, I went before the God of the universe on your behalf this morning. Isn't that an encouraging thing? I want to encourage you. Feel free to tell people that kind of stuff. Unless you're just trying to tell them so you'll feel good about yourself. Don't do that. This is what Jesus tells us not to do in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Don't just be praying so people think you're special and self-righteous. Don't do that. If you're struggling with that, then just pray for them and be quiet. <laughs> but 
where you feel like you want to tell them you're praying for them for their encouragement, not for just puffing yourself up, I'd encourage you to do that because that's an encouragement to people to know that they're prayed for. So the stuff that Paul is actually thanking God for, here's what he sees that he wants to praise God for, their work, their labor, and their endurance. But he says something uh, special about their work, labor, and endurance that I want us to pay attention to. He says, we recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those good things he points out are connected to these three greatest Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. Those are the things that produce them. What comes to mind for you when you hear faith, hope, and love? Most of us probably think very happy, peaceful, restful, relaxing things. Think of inner peace and smiles and a Chick-fil-A kind of friendliness That's what comes to mind. And that peace and gentleness is definitely a part of faith, hope, and love, but there's a lot more to it than that. I think those terms have been a little hijacked from us because they sound like uh, they should be on a greeting card with flowers and doves around them. They they just sound, uh, yeah, I mean, if you Google faith, hope, and love, that's probably what will come up is just flowers and doves. Don't Google that now, though, in church. God is watching you. But these words faith, hope, and love have been hijacked a little bit so that they sound weak to us, right? They don't sound strong. People don't think these kind of Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love actually have any usefulness in the difficult world that we live in. People think of this as like some internal things that just kind of help you get on with your life when it's hard. You got faith, hope, and love. Um, And we as Christians can even look down on these virtues sometimes, because we feel like, man, I look around the world, and I even see some of my non-Christian friends seeming like they're getting to work and being active. What's the use of this stuff in my soul? Let's just do stuff. But these are not soft. These are not meaningless. These are not impotent virtues. These are the highest virtues for a reason. And here's one of the reasons we think they're useless, because we leave them so generic and abstract, like faith, hope, and love, hearts, and joy. Instead of, that's not what Paul is talking about, some generic thing. He's talking about a very specific faith in Jesus, the risen Lord. He's talking about a very specific love for God because you've been loved by him and love for neighbor because God has loved you in that way. He's talking about a very specific hope in Jesus, understanding that our world is a mess and Jesus gives hope that there's some things that he's promised. He's talking about some actual concrete kinds of faith, hope. And love. They're not these inner virtues that make you feel warm and fuzzy or just help you get through life. He's talking about a kind of faith, hope, and love that actually produce work, that make you get to work, right? We think of like skipping through fields and thinking nice thoughts. Paul is talking about the kind of faith, hope, and love that produce work, labor, and endurance. Faith, thank you, Wes, faith, The kind of faith he's talking here produces work. He says your work produced by faith. Faith and work are not two things that are in competition with each other. Like, is it faith or works? These are not in competition. You you really can't have one without the other. They're inseparable. Faith and works is like a punch and pain, right? If if you feel pain, you might have got punched. If you don't feel any pain, you probably didn't get punched, right? If there's no work, then you probably don't have any faith. One necessarily follows the other. Work follows faith. Faith produces work. If you have some kind of contentment that you have saving faith in Jesus, but there are no good works in your life, I want to encourage you to not feel so safe. Faith produces 
work. He talks about labor motivated by love. He's talking about this love for God and neighbor that's motivated, uh, this labor uh, that's motivated by love for God and neighbor. Again, labor is, again, different kinds of works and laboring to serve other people, and it's motivated by how we've been loved by God and our love for others. There's a reason that people in this church make large sacrifices in order to serve one another. It's not because they just love sacrificial labor. People don't just wake up in the morning like, man, I hope I can do some. hope I can help somebody move this week. I would love that. I love moving people's furniture all day on a Saturday in the heat in Atlanta, and they're not even that grateful. Nobody wakes up thinking that. The thing that motivates someone to make sacrifices in their own life to labor for someone else's good is love. Love produces that kind of labor. Love is a holy affection for someone and a selfless commitment to their good. And if you're committed to someone's good, then you're going to work towards that good. Love motivates labor. And then he talks about this hope-inspired endurance, right? They're facing persecution for believing in Jesus, right? They have people in their face pushing back every single day. And the thing that allows them to endure is their hope. You ever had just a hard week and just the hope? That there is such thing as a Saturday gets you through that week? Like, man, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the end of this day. But you're like, man, Saturday, on Saturday, I can just chill. I'm I'm not going to have to go to work on Saturday. I'm not going to have to see none of these people on Saturday. I can do this. I can make it through. Um, Or or if you're a parent, you're like, man, I would like to uh, throw a toy at a child, but bedtime is in about an hour. I think I can make it an hour without assaulting my child with a toy. Sometimes just the hope of something better allows you to endure what you're in right now. This isn't what I'm going to have forever. Right? So we're talking about this endurance they have is inspired by hope. This life isn't all we have. So I can endure this knowing that this is momentary. Someone else, Paul, calls them these light momentary afflictions. After he's talking about getting stoned and left for dead. These light momentary afflictions don't even compare to the eternal weight of glory. That hope allows us to endure. Now, again, people think hope is weak and it's soft. One author, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, he, he, he's always speaking out against hope. Uh, talking about one other writer's writing, he said, his is neither the stuff of sweet dreams nor hope. He says, I think a writer wedded to hope is ultimately divorced from the truth. Two creeds can occupy the same place at the same time. He's saying hope and truth are so opposite that you can't really hold the both of them. Because if you're honest and you're realistic, there's no need for hope at all. Hope is useless, right? Somewhere else he says, hope struck me an overrated force in human history. Fear did not. He's saying I can get a lot more accomplished with fear than I can with hope. Because what he sees hope as uh, is, again, just some kind of inner virtue to make you feel good. When instead, what we're saying hope is, we're not saying we're just trying to feel good hoping something nice will happen. We're saying, no, we have rock-solid hope because we know what's going to happen. We know for certain what's going to happen, right? So if there is no certainty, then of course hope is stupid. I'm not just going to tell myself good stuff to make myself feel nice. But if there is a Lord who came and died for sins and rose from the grave and is coming back and is making all things new, then I have more than enough reason for hope. Paul talks about that hope that inspires endurance. I'm spending way too much time right here. I got to keep moving. But I will say this, Wes, Arab, you can't speak for everybody. People got to leave. <laughs> Kids and child care, you know. Um, I will say this, um, you even think about some of the, 
you know, more current civil rights movements, people who uh, would lift up the kind of faith, hope, and love we're talking about have been kind of sidelined because people see it as useless. So I want to encourage you as believers in Jesus to live the kind of lives that show people that faith, hope, and love are not useless, that faith motivates your work, and that love is what produces that labor, and your hope gives you endurance. I mean, this is the stuff that past movements were built on. I want to encourage you to embrace those things and show people the real work that it can have in us. And sometimes we do good things for the wrong reasons. So sometimes our work and our labor and our endurance is not motivated by love, hope, and faith. It's motivated by a desire to look good before other people. I want to encourage you, just because you do the right things doesn't mean that God is pleased. He's concerned with the heart. So I want to encourage you, where you labor, uh, labor from a heart that actually loves God. What has your faith, hope, and love produced last week? You have a real faith, hope, and love in Jesus. What has it produced in the last week? And if you're looking up and saying, I don't have the kind of work, labor, and endurance I want to, I don't want you to just say, okay, what can I do? I want you to check your faith, hope, and love. Right? Is, is, is there something wrong with my faith, with my hope, and my love? I'll keep going. He says this, verse 4. He says, my, um, sorry, uh, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 2.4 because he talks about, he says, we know that you're chosen by God because of the way that the, uh, the word worked. And he says something similar in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. He's saying, when I came and I preached the gospel, there was a demonstration of power. And we see this all throughout Acts. When the gospel is preached, this incredible stuff is happening. Acts 2, people start speaking languages they never spoke before, right? Uh, People are getting healed. I mean, there's all this stuff that accompanies the message of the gospel that God is doing to get the gospel moving. He's like, okay, I know it's going to be strange for people to believe this, so I'm going to do some miracles to show that the message is true. And Paul is saying, look, when I preach the gospel, one of the ways I know you're chosen by God is that when that gospel was preached, it wasn't just words that you heard, uh, but it was also received with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. God was doing some miraculous signs and wonders to attest to it that the Lord used to get the gospel moving. Now, we shouldn't assume, though, that because we don't see signs and and wonders every week in church that this gospel is any less true than it was then. Uh, We could say, no, we need signs and wonders for the gospel to get to us. How are you here right now, right? The Lord is able to draw people to his message without those signs and wonders, but he did it specifically in this way uh, in this time. And it still happens in some places at some times, but we shouldn't be around searching for those in order to believe the gospel is true. He also says it's confirmed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was at work in them in a very unique way and with full assurance. So when they heard that gospel, they were absolutely sure. They had firm conviction that Jesus was who he said he was. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who rose from the dead, the kind of conviction that a lot of us can attest to. When people stand on this stage and say, man, I thought I believed in Jesus, but I wasn't really sure. And then something happened in my life where it was crystal clear to me who Christ was, and I wanted to build my life around that Jesus. He's saying this happened in their lives, and that's how he knows that God is at work. Because the gospel doesn't hide its work. It's not a shame. The gospel shows its work. First thing we should expect is that fruit. Second thing is following. That was the longest point. Don't be scared. Second thing is following. We see fruit and we see following. People don't usually want to be described as a follower, right? If you call someone a follower, that's usually not a compliment. We we don't want to be followers. We don't want to be imitating other people. We want to be original. Um, 
But following and imitating is actually something that's unavoidable. Uh, so I was reading about identity, how we think about identity uh, in modern times. And the author was saying that currently we feel like in order to find ourselves and figure out who we are, we try to get as far away as possible from other people to just like come up with it on our own. And so we're unique in the history of the world and that to find ourselves, we leave our entire community to go find some brand new ideas because we don't want to be like mom and dad. When in other times, people leaned on community and the people that loved them to help them figure out who they are and think about stuff. But here's the ironic thing of trying to get away because we're so individualistic is we usually just run and find someone else to imitate and follow. What we're really doing is going to find some other system of ideas that make us feel useful. We're reading stuff, we're listening to other people. Uh, following others is unavoidable. Imitating others is unavoidable. So the question is not if you're going to follow and imitate others. The question is who you're going to follow and imitate. Listen to what Paul says here, verse 5. Uh, he says, you know how we lived among you for your benefit. And you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord. When in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith has gone out. Paul is saying, hey, so people are slandering Paul after he left, right? It seems like people are saying, man, those dudes, they just showed up and then they rolled out. Are they trying to get this money? Are they not who they said they are? And Paul is saying, you know how we lived among you, right? It's like when somebody's trying to front on you, like, what are you talking about? I was just at your house last night. We was giggling. What are you doing? Paul is saying, you know how we lived among you for your benefit. We weren't here trying to make money. Elsewhere in the book, he talks about we specifically did things and had jobs so they wouldn't have to depend on you for money. You know how we lived among you for your benefit. He defends himself a lot in the book. He'll do that a lot more in chapter 2. But here's one of the reasons they, they're saying that, because they understand if I preach a gospel that's the greatest news of all time that's supposed to change our lives, my life can't be such a complete mess that I refuse to ever repent of my sins that I actually follow Jesus myself. He's saying, you know how we live. And then he's saying, and y'all imitated us. As the Thessalonians watched them try to live these godly lives, they imitated them, right? They saw stuff in them that they wanted to emulate. They saw a kind of love and a kind of mercy and a kind of graciousness with each other that they wanted to see in their own lives. And anybody who's been a Christian for any period of time, I mean, isn't this how it always happens? We want to know how to honor God, and we see other Christians who are doing it well, and we imitate them. I remember when uh, we had a members meeting, and John asked everybody to write down who uh, the, like, three or four most influential people in their lives were. And it took us, like, four hours to do. But we did it, and we were going around, and we were talking to each other. And the incredible thing was there were people who just had these lists of folks who had just poured into their lives in amazing ways, right? There was a season where I was struggling with this sin, this person helped me to follow Jesus. But I, it was right before I got married. I was living with this couple, and I was able to see what marriage actually looked like. There are a ton of stories like that in my own life from dudes when I'm 15 years old kind of taking me in and actually teaching me how to study the Bible. And I'm in high school. They're starting to pursue their wives. And so as I'm an idiot in how I think about interacting with opposite sex, I'm able to watch them. I'm able to see them uh, treat, this, treat them as sisters with all purity. I'm able to see them be very intentional. I'm able to see the way they're living their lives. And to this day, there are things that I want to honor Jesus more in, and one of the most obvious ways to do that is to watch people who do it well and to imitate them. 
Right? So even as a young parent, I'm always asking my friends who've been parents for a longer period of time. I'm saying, man, how do I do ABC? They're like, I'll tell you what I did. There's one brother who was talking about the ways he tries to teach his kids, uh, you know, to, uh, to have conversations with him and build their relationship. He said, man, every night we sit down and I ask them if there's anything they want to talk about. I ask them a few questions. Right before bed, you, re- you really get to hear about their day and hear about their joys and pains. And that's something that I immediately put to work and has had fruit in my own life. This is how we grow to be more like Jesus. We watch people who are doing it, and we imitate them. But Paul doesn't just say you became imitators of us. He says you became imitators of us and the Lord, right? So um, we should never just imitate a man or a woman. We should imitate a man or a woman as much as they help us to imitate Jesus, right? It should always be them and the Lord. So um, that, that's a good way to ask yourself if you should imitate somebody. If I imitate them, will I be imitating Jesus? Right? If I take this song, and this sometimes happens, we're not trying to imitate people. We just hang around people and we find ourselves being like them. We want to end up imitating the kind of people who will help us to imitate Jesus. Here's one of the things about imitating Jesus. We have to actually love and admire Jesus to want to do it. So you remember when you was, well, I'll tell you about me when I was a kid and the people I admired. You know, I love basketball, so I love Michael Jordan. I mean, and if I say Michael Jordan and the first thing that comes to mind is crying Jordan, I feel sorry for you, okay? There was a whole legacy of greatness before that even happened. And he was in a vulnerable moment, and we just going to meme him to death. Anyway, um, so Michael Jordan was a dude I wanted to be. I, I admired him, so I wanted to be like him and play basketball like him. I'm only 5'8". It didn't work out, but I had the dreams. There's Michael Jackson. I used to watch. I had this VHS tape, Michael Jackson Moonwalk, and I like watch all his videos, and I couldn't dance or sing, so that didn't work out. But I admired him, and I wanted to be like him, so I tried to imitate him, right? And then I loved hip-hop, and I loved Jay-Z, and that worked out for me. Uh, but when we... When, <laughs> nah, but when we, when we start to imitate people, the people that we're going to imitate are the people that we actually admire. So if in our hearts we don't have any taste buds for any good things like faith, hope, and love, we're going to admire and imitate people who don't exemplify those things. Jesus is not going to seem like somebody worth imitating if what we value more than anything else is telling somebody off. That's just not how Jesus got down. That's just not what we see in the scriptures. Right? Or if we only admire people who seem to be able to have a ton of sexual part, that's just not what we see in Scripture. Faith, hope, and love are the kind of things we want people to be able to uh, see in our lives as well. And he says they became imitators when they received the message in spite of severe persecution. So all this persecution, people telling them not to believe in Jesus, they became imitators because Jesus endured persecution and pressed on. And Paul endured persecution. They watched him get kicked out and pressed on, and they became imitators. Watching them allowed, to know, uh, allowed them to know how to endure persecution. I want to encourage us uh, to not be surprised when people don't like us because we love Jesus. Uh, scripture says that our world loves the dark rather than the light. And so if we try to walk in the light, people will be frustrated with that. Even if you don't say nothing to people, it's just annoying to people because it feels like some kind of condemnation against them when you choose not to do things that they would love to do. This is just how the world is often going to work. And there are going to be people who are very verbally going to try to give us pushback, don't want us to follow Jesus. And of course, we have brothers and sisters in other countries where persecution doesn't look like uh, verbal slander, but it looks like people losing their lives. So this is really real for Christians uh, across church history. But here's what he's saying. 
you receive the message with joy in spite of persecution. Because there's something that you received in the good news about Jesus that was greater than life itself, that was greater than comfort, so that you could still have joy even as people persecuted you. I wonder if the message of Jesus brings you enough joy that you can deal with the mess that comes at you and still be fine and still have joy. He commends them for that. And then here's the thing that happens with the following. Verse 7, as a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith has gone out. He's saying you watched us and became imitators of us when you received the message, and now people are watching you. You've become an example. This is like the cycle of, of, of following Jesus, where we become followers of Jesus, we imitate others who are following Jesus, and then we try to live our lives in such a way where we can be an example for others to be able to imitate. If you kind of just forever have yourself in a place in your own mind where you'll never be worth imitating in any way, all I need to do is learn from other people. I want you to know Jesus has called you to more than that. Jesus has called you to try to live your life in such a way where you can be an example to others. And if the four pastors of this church feel like we're the only ones who can ever help anybody to grow more and follow Jesus, we're going to be a very unhealthy church. What we're called to do is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. This work of the ministry, us growing in Jesus, that is all of our work. That's all of our jobs, right? So if we don't have this kind of constant looking to people and imitating them and also living in a way where people can imitate you, and that includes repenting of sins, and I'm... I have issues. I need to grow and turn from those things, too. You don't have to be perfect to be an example worth following. If we don't do that, we're not going to be able to be healthy as a church. And this is part of what it means to follow Jesus. There's following of others and allowing others to follow you. Last thing, last kind of work we want to see the gospel show is forsaking. The gospel shows his work, so we'll see fruit, we'll see following, and we'll see some forsaking. There are some things that happen to us. Uh, or that occur around us that impact us so deeply that they change everything about us, right? Even make us reconsider some of the things that we love most. And I'll bring up Michael Jordan again because this is the most dramatic example of this. Um, Michael Jordan, after his dad died, you know, he'd already been so, you know, he, they'd won three back-to-back championships, right? Best player in the world, uh, clearly incredible. His dad dies, um, and he, he wins his championship, and then he retires to go play baseball, something he hadn't played since high school. And so people are like, you ain't really going to do that. He's like, watch me. And so he went and he played baseball. Uh, and, and that impacted him so deeply that even some of the things he had spent his whole life building them around, he was ready to forsake them. He wanted to play baseball because it made him feel closer to his dad because that was a sport his dad originally wanted him to play, and it changed everything for him. Believe in the gospel of Jesus should be the kind of thing that can impact us enough to make us forsake even the things that we've chased after our entire lives. But it has to be even more dramatic than what happened with Michael Jordan. He went right back to basketball and dunking on dudes in a couple years, as he should have, where he belonged. If you, if you haven't caught up with the story, baseball didn't go good. So he, he went back and did what he was supposed to be doing. But the kind of change that the gospel produces should be a kind of... E- It should be an eternal change that lasts, that we can even forsake the things that we love most. Listen to what Paul says, uh, verse 8. He says, therefore, we don't need to say anything. He's saying we don't need to say anything about who we are, how we live. Uh, Verse 9, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turn to God from idols 
to serve the living and true God and await for his son from heaven who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Again, Paul is saying it's clear that the gospel is at work because we saw how you responded to the message. You turned to God from idols. He's saying there were idols that you were worshiping as your God that you forsook, that you turned away from, and you followed something new. That's evidence of the gospel at work. Sometimes people wonder, hey, to believe in Jesus, do you just have to believe or do you also have to repent of your sins? Um, Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You cannot worship idols and worship Jesus at the same time. You have to turn away from idols. And if you believe in Jesus, then you let go of those idols and you cling to him. And he's saying, this is how I know that you believe. I want to ask you, if you're in this room and you're, you're kind of thinking through whether or not you're a Christian and what you think about the, the gospel and the good news, one of the good ways to know is, have you ever had such a change of mind in your life where you chose Jesus over everything else? Where you were ready to let go of everything, especially sin that offends God, so that you can cling to Jesus? Even now, does that seem like something worth doing? The sins in your life that Jesus is going to tell you, let go of that. And, and there's some of that that we know. We know that this isn't pleasing to God. And if I'm going to be serious about following God, I would have to let go of this. Does that seem like something worth doing? That's a good way for us to know how we're responding to the gospel. And there are really only two ways to respond to the gospel. We either receive it or we reject it. Receiving it looks like turning from idols. Rejecting it looks like turning away from Jesus to hold on to our idols. He's saying, here's how I know. Because you forsook those idols in order to do something. You turn to God from idols. Right? Belief in Jesus would have us do that. Um, you turn from idols to God in order to do two things, to serve the living and true God and to wait for the return of Jesus. That's a good summary of the Christian life. Serving and waiting. Now, a lot of us would much rather be conquering and receiving. Right? We want everything we want right now. We want to win everything. Jesus said, no, no, no. The summary of what this is going to be like after you believe in Jesus is serving and waiting. Somebody may say, that's not a good way to follow up you asking people to follow Jesus. But this is what it is. Serving and waiting. Serving the living and true God. Recognizing that he's the king of the universe and your life has been created for him. And then waiting for the return of his son. Now, Jesus coming back for the second time is the main theme of this book, First Thessalonians. All of it is kind of like we're all believers in Jesus. We, we trusted in him. And we're waiting for him to come back. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? We're supposed to serve and wait. We're supposed to serve and wait. Waiting is a huge, huge part uh, of the Christian life. And, and one of the reasons we don't like it is because it sounds very passive. Uh, but the way that Scripture talks about waiting is a very active waiting. It's not just saying, well, I'm going to just wait on Jesus to get back. Until then, I'm going to just sit here. It's actually this very act of striving to trust in Jesus, this act of striving uh, not to go after other things instead of him. Uh, Hosea 12, 6 says, so you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. But we have an even greater reason to wait than they were talking about because we know that Christ is coming back. And in the meantime, we obey him. We wait on him, and we obey him. And waiting on him also means not chasing after false saviors that seem better. Now, sometimes we're in places where the stuff Jesus calls us to pursue seems like it won't satisfy us, so we go after other stuff. But that's foolish. We're supposed to be waiting on Jesus, our actual savior. Don't go after false saviors out of impatience. This would be like if I called an Uber, 
And I'm waiting on him. I see he's five minutes away, and some random dude drives up like, hey, you want me to take you? I'm like, let's go. That's a bad idea. I'm supposed to be waiting on a driver and a GPS, so if something bad happens, people know where I'm at. I can't just jump in the car with a random person. That's not going to get me to where I'm going. And if we want to spend our eternity with God, if we want an abundant, full joy in life that Jesus is offering us, we need to wait on Jesus. He says to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. If we would think of Jesus as the one who rescues us from the coming wrath, as a resurrected rescuer swooping down from heaven to come get us, maybe we would wait with more anticipation. If instead of thinking this is something random that may or may not happen, there is a resurrected rescuer who's going to swoop down from heaven to rescue us from the coming wrath. His name is Jesus, and he's worth waiting on. So I know sometimes it feels like life is a mess, nothing's going right, life isn't worth living. My encouragement, wait on Jesus. I know sometimes it seems like a relationship can fulfill you in ways that nothing else can't. You know, you shouldn't go after it, but you want to. I want to say, wait on Jesus. I know for some of us that are ill, have sicknesses, dark clouds over our heads, feel like we'll never feel okay again. I want to encourage you, wait on Jesus. Some of us are weighed down by all the injustices around us, we wonder, will there ever be perfect justice? There will. Just wait on Jesus. We're tired of pain. Wait on Jesus. We're tired of tears. Wait on Jesus. We're tired of our sin. Wait on Jesus. We're tired of everybody around us letting us down. Wait on Jesus. Jesus is coming back, and he's going to fix all of it. Jesus is going to do away with all the pain, all the brokenness, all the suffering. But I want to encourage you, he's not back yet, so let's wait on Jesus. And let's let this gospel go to work in our lives. The gospel shows its work. We're not just waiting one day to see it's going to be perfected. In the meantime, the gospel is showing that it's at work even right now. And I'll close by, by saying this. Um, I have an illness called chronic fatigue syndrome. and People sometimes can't really tell from, from far away. They say, you seem like you do a lot of stuff. Uh, you don't seem sleepy. Um, but then when people get up close and we, we actually do life together, you, you can see it. Uh, that it's not just a thing that exists somewhere outside of my life, but it impacts every single arena of my life. That it's the hardest thing about my marriage and the hardest thing about uh, my job. It's the hardest thing about my parenting. It, it, it's something that makes this uh, mark on every single thing that I do. Uh, it is at work in my life in very difficult ways. Well, I want you to think of the gospel as the inverse, as something that's not just going to show up on the side of your life somewhere. But if the gospel has really taken root, there are going to be symptoms. And those symptoms are going to be that fruit. It's going to be that following. It's going to be that forsaken. It's going to show up. And not just in one area of your life. It's going to show up everywhere. And you want people, as they come close, to get a good glimpse of the work of the gospel in your life. Not working negative, not destroying your body, but the gospel that gives you hope that one day you'll get a new body and you'll be with Jesus forever. This entire book of First Thessalonians is going to Give us a little bit more about what the gospel looks like in our lives.